Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I'm Leo Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Discography is brought to you by Reverb LP, a marketplace for used and new music. Vinyl, CDs, tapes, even reel-to-reel. With buyer protection and impeccable selection, if you're looking to complete your discography, there's no better place. Shop for music on the go with the Reverb LP app, available on Android and iOS, or find them online at lp.reverb.com. Hello and welcome to Discography. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm not only a lifelong record geek and not only the host of this here show on the Consequence Podcast Network, but I've also been releasing lo-fi pop records independently for nearly 20 years now. Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canonical albums of first release material to see who the music says that they really are and how it all stacks up. Discography aims to educate and inform those listeners who really want to know. All opinions are that of the person that said them, because everything is subjective, right? Discography can also be a pretty personal journey for me, which you should know up front. Let's get on with the show. And when I say let's get on with the show, I really mean it this week. Hi, Mark with a C here with you. Super stoked that you're back. Super stoked that we can keep doing our Who thing, but we've got a lot of ground to cover to bring us up to the present. When we left off last week, we had talked about the very beginnings of the 1989 tour by The Who, as well as Pete's solo record, The Iron Man, which I think is pretty unfairly maligned and misunderstood, and frankly, I was one of them that misunderstood it, and... The only way you don't know that is if you somehow jumped in at episode 6, and I really... I really have to implore that you go back, start from the beginning, because right now you might just be a little bit lost as far as like running themes, running threads, etc. So if this is your first episode, please go back to episode one or hey, you can just uh, listen to me talk about the latter days of the who and uh, whatnot. The world is your burrito. But I think you'll have a better time if you start at episode one. Either way, we're going to jump right into the thick of 1989. Let's move on. 
So, while Pete Townsend's new musical record, The Iron Man, took a good lashing from critics and fans alike, The Who's 1989 tour soldiered on. Ticket sales weren't slow by any means, but the FM radio support was simply off the charts at this point. Nearly every month, there'd be another simulcasted show or radio show where one could call in and ask the members questions. On a purely technical level, it had actually been one of the most solid and drama-free tours the band had ever done until fate literally struck on August 16th, 1989 in Tacoma, Washington. During one of the last arm swinging windmills that Pete was going to do for the night, a whammy bar that wasn't set properly was sticking out and Pete inadvertently swung his hand right into the pointy metal rod which pierced directly through the webbing between his fingers. And the band actually played an encore without him and everyone feared the worst, but somehow Pete had missed every part of his hand that could have disabled him. Nothing was canceled, and he was back on stage two nights later in Vancouver with his hand all bandaged up. One of those simulcasts that I mentioned was a pay-per-view performance of Tommy at the Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles on August 24th of 1989. They'd uh, play every song from the rock opera barring Underture and Welcome while bringing out special guests to play characters such as Billy Idol as Cousin Kevin, Patti LaBelle as the Acid Queen, and Phil Collins doing the creepiest Uncle Ernie that you can imagine and I'm a little surprised that more people weren't scarred for life by his dedication to the role. An edited version would later be broadcast on the Fox network, and the bulk of this show eventually made it to home video. The American leg of the tour would come to a close with another simulcast show from the Cotton Bowl in Texas that September. this show is that Pete opens up the gig playing a 12-string Rickenbacker guitar just like in the early days, so even though it doesn't really sound like The Who as you might know it, for one of the first times, what we hear is a true attempt at recreating the sounds from a record on stage, where it had always been the other way around for The Who. Also hear them getting a little bit slap happy and being a little more jovial than usual with each other when it's time for John's introduction. Big giant twinkle. <laughs> the man with a thousand nicknames. And none of them, none of them at all apt. Big dick head whistle, that's the one, that's the best one, isn't it? Super dumb. I agree with that one, yeah. This is a song, I've seen it, folks. Oh, the spider <laughs> I'm talking about now. This is a song about a spider. I mean, how's that for an introduction to Boris the Spider, right? One of the highlights, though, was each night they'd do a song that was just the three remaining original members of the band, Roger Daltrey, Pete Townsend, and John Entwistle, all by their lonesome. Some nights you'd get completely surprising tunes like Too Much of Anything or Marianne with the Shaky Hands, but on this night we got a version of Magic Bus with just Roger, Pete, and John, and the audience on backing vocals, which actually becomes pretty charming in the dead center of such slick renditions of the previously kind of jagged material. The end of the road.
episode for this tour came in November of 1989 at the Royal Albert Hall in England, and it'd be the last full-length Who show we'd get for at least another six full years, but no one was holding their breath, still reeling a bit from the surprise reunion that seemed to fly in the face of all that we thought we knew. But I have to admit that it was actually kind of refreshing to have Pete admit in his book that the tour was done for money. And even if it didn't look or sound like the Who of old, who could be upset that we had another chance to see them together? Though the group did perform at their induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in January of 1990, backed by the likes of Bruce Springsteen and John Fogarty, and with so many people on stage at once that movement was nearly impossible during Pinball Wizard. Actually, so many people were on stage that I'm not even sure if John played bass on the track, and that the duties weren't handled by Pete from the Kinks. Now, March of 1990 saw the release of Join Together, a two-disc or three-LP box set souvenir from the 1989 tour that Pete would claim that he wasn't even consulted about, right down to the artwork. Though, considering that a good portion of the recordings were compiled with the help of Billy Nichols, who was the musical supervisor for the 1989 tour, and that there's a dedication to Keith Moon on the back cover, I have to imagine that Pete and the band had some idea that this was being worked on. Now, one of the reasons that this assumption sort of sticks in my head is that the first half of Join Together is made up of sort of composite versions of the nights that they'd played Tommy in full. And if you were tuned in to the Westwood One broadcast of the Radio City Music Hall show, you'd have heard that John's mic wasn't exactly cooperating during the song Cousin Kevin. So that's like the original broadcast, right? But the same performance on Join Together has a pretty obviously freshly overdubbed John in that exact same space. did take an absolute beating in the press, with some critics even going as far as saying that the slick and overproduced manner in which the already smooth as butter performances would cause irreparable damage to the Who's reputation. Still, if you're interested in wildly different presentations of songs you probably never expected to hear on live albums, it's not the waste of time that some would have you believe. For example, with I Can See For Miles proving to be impossible for the initial four-man lineup of the Who to perform live, the Join Together box set highlights the first time that the song was featured in a manner that seemed to please the group. Now, anyone who'd ever wondered just how much different Pete's solo tune Rough Boys might have sounded if it had been done with The Who instead? Well, you finally get your answer here on this box set, but the answer is, well, not that much different, really. And of all the songs that the band could pick to play with such a large and expanded lineup, who'd have ever guessed that the compilers would have picked John's song, Trick of the Light, over, say, Baba O'Reilly or My Generation? It's definitely not like some live Greatest Hits album, and it doesn't sound the way most folks would expect The Who to sound, but it's actually a pretty neat insight into that tour. It may not be for everyone, but it's still pretty imaginative and inspired in both the songs they left out and the ones that they chose to include.
Now, I do my best here at Discography to separate gossip from the things that actually matter to the records, so I'm just gonna say this in passing. Remember back in 1990 when Pete gave some interviews mentioning that he was bisexual and a bunch of radio DJs made fun of him for it and then it trickled down to the fans? That was not a good look and we should definitely have a talk about that in some point on my upcoming show Reprimandography preparing on the Consequence Podcast Network on the 12th of fucking never. Just do better, y'all. Anyways, back to the music. There was a further new studio recording made by the band in 1991, which was a medley of Elton John covers. Recorded for a tribute album to Elton John and his writing partner, Bernie Taupin, but in true Who fashion, Pete wanted to do the song Take Me to the Pilot, while Raj wanted to do Saturday Night's Alright for Fighting. Roger got his way, but they added a snippet of Pete's pick as a brand new bridge. Despite this newfound ability to compromise, it'd be the last new studio recording for the band for quite some time, and to date, it's actually the last officially released studio recording that they'd ever make with John Entwistle. Take me to the pilot, lead me through the chamber. Take me to the pilot, I'm but a stranger. Take me to the pilot, lead me through the chamber. Take me to the pilot, I'm but a stranger. Nah, nah, nah. However, it actually came very close to being the last recording that Pete Townsend himself would ever make, as he fell off of his bike in September of 1991 and literally shattered his wrist to bits. Luckily, his surgeon figured out a way to set the bones so there'd at least be a chance for Pete to hold a pick in the future, and if it weren't for that surgeon, discography would probably end right here. Pete mentioned that it completely changed his playing and strumming style, which is to be expected of course, but it's pretty amazing just how quickly he was able to get back into fighting shape because, spoiler alert, he'd write and release a whole new concept less than two years later. Kinda superhuman, huh? Of course, before that new concept appeared, Pete had worked up a new stage play version of Tommy with Des McEnuff. It quietly opened at the La Jolla Playhouse in California. Tickets were in high enough demand to extend the show indefinitely, and it eventually wound up being a massive Broadway hit. Roger didn't seem to think terribly highly of it, having been the person that inhabits Tommy's role most often, but that didn't stop the general public from going completely gaga for it, running for 899 performances according to Wikipedia. So that's either very, very specifically right or... It's just a number that somebody plucked out of the sky. Of course, Roger still wanted to make some noise, and why shouldn't he? Wonder what he's got up his sleeve after a few years of concentrating on acting and looking back with the who. Roger Daltrey released his eighth solo record, Rocks in the Head, around June of 1992. He would record it at the Hit Factory, where classic records by the Stooges, the Talking Heads, Stevie Wonder, and John Lennon had all been minted. And look, I know, I know, I'm pretty merciless about Roger's records. And while this one doesn't really blow me away either, it's not only a solid record, it's a straight-up good rock and roll album. Now sure, there's still a lot of cooks in the kitchen, and some of the tones could do with a bit more personality for my own tastes, which has ultimately been my two major hang-ups with his solo records. But the main thing I had felt was missing was some actual, genuine passion on Roger's part. 
See, I don't doubt his urge to create, but he's such an effective and heartfelt interpreter for Pete Townsend's music that I can't figure out what the disconnect is for me when he sings tracks by others. But thankfully, that's not even close to a concern here. He sounds engaged and just fucking ready. There's 11 tracks here, and Roger co-wrote seven of them, including the bluesy but rough and tumble Times Changed. Then he turned up some of that speed metal and he said, this is what I think. Now, one of the songs that Roger co-wrote here is the first and only single from the album, a track called Days of Light, in which Roger reminisces about his job as a sheet metal worker and how much he used to look forward to the weekend. Hot and heavy nights, true love ways. Tomorrow needs to be the good old days. Everybody's working for those days of light. The song rose to number six on the U.S. rock airplay charts, and it's a cool and catchy rootsy tune, but with some radio success, I'm a little bit surprised that Atlantic Records didn't try to push the album a little bit further with another single, because You Can't Call It Love is pretty much begging to be a massive AOR hit, too. Now look, if I'm being totally honest, there's still a lot of cheese here. Like, I'm not blown away by the lyrical cliches in the song Mirror Mirror, which is not one of Roger's co-writes. Mirror, mirror but the song Blues Man's Road is one of Roger's co-writes, and it's just... Okay, so this one kind of reminds me of some of that almost force-sounding aggression that started really plaguing Roger's records, especially in the 80s. It just doesn't work for me against the Shooby-Doo backing vocals. But hey, pretty much everything else here... Look, even if I'm not completely enamored, I get the angle, I respect the intentions, and I believe that Roger and producer Gerard McMahon absolutely made the record that they set out to make, which I don't always walk away feeling from Roger Daltrey's solo stuff. This one, it's proof that he had it in him all along. Unfortunately, the record could only get so far because, again... Atlantic only pushed the one single from Rocks in the Head, and despite some interviews and some live performances on talk shows, there wasn't a tour to hang the album's hat on, and it just didn't reach the ears that it could have. Plus, in 1992, alternative rock was in full swing, so I'm extra surprised that Atlantic Records wasn't floored by the chart placement of Days of Light, but <sighs> I've never understood the record industry, and I don't suppose I'll start getting it today. And they even had the perfect vehicle to do a looking back while looking forward kind of thing with the closing track, Unforgettable Opera. The title is just enough to make you think of Tommy or Quadrophenia, but the lyrics are instead about the polyphony of life and... I just don't get this. It's his most solid record since Under a Raging Moon. It's almost as good as the Mick Vicker soundtrack. I'm sure it took some work to make this thing, yet it languishes in obscurity. And I guess that's just how it's going to be, though. If Rocks in the Head doesn't do it for you, there's enough familiar names in the liner notes to at least make you somewhat curious, like the reappearance of Jody Lynn Scott from Pete's Deep End Band, as well as The Who's 1989 tour, the seemingly ever-present Billy Nichols on backing vocals, and heck, even Robert Lamb from Chicago drops by to play piano. 
Rocks in the Head does not reinvent the wheel, but it's still a good wheel nonetheless. While it may not be seen as a major release, that may be more due to label politics than any actual problems with the content, and this was surely frustrating for Mr. Daltrey, as this would be his last solo record for over 20 years. Meanwhile, Pete was gearing up for his own entry into the 90s, and he's brought some familiar themes with him. Psycho Derelict is a really big, sprawling project released by Pete Townsend on Atlantic Records in June of 1993. I'm gonna tell you right now, this thing is a mindfuck, and in some cases, it's more fun to talk about than listen to, or vice versa, especially when you consider what's coming down the pike in the future, but I'm getting ahead of myself and our chronology in general. So, okay, Psycho Derelict, in its most commonly found form, is a concept record, yes but that's selling it incredibly short. In practice, it's really presented as a radio play, and much like Lifehouse might have been intended for its film, the songs don't necessarily explain the story, but rather serve to enhance it. But when I say radio play, I mean actual radio play. Re you know, there's actors reciting dialogue, there's Foley effects. Every time there's an instrumental passage, the volume gets turned down on whatever song you're playing so the actors can talk more. <laughs> Oh, this place is crawling with journalists. Hey, the fucking lot of them. All right, you've got to play the game, hey? I mean, you've got to believe. You know what I think. You so you basically got to be married, like, married to the story to get any replayability out of the thing, or you might just find yourself being irrationally angry at owning an album where every possible thing pops up to distract you from Pete's actual performances. <laughs> so let's talk about the story as best as I can. There's really four characters. First, you've got the aging, reclusive rock star named Ray High, and he's been shut away working on something to enhance a universal grid that we'd all be connected to, and his project called Grid Life seems to have a lot in common with Lifehouse, and it'd be foolhardy to think that that's an accident. He's got a manager named Rastus Knight. Rastus seems to mostly just want his client to get back to working and performing in a way that makes him some money. You've got Ruth Streeting, a DJ and critic that devises a scheme after talking with Rastus that she's positive will get Ray High inspired again. And then you've got Rosalind, a 15-year-old girl that starts writing to Ray, sharing details of a difficult life, but she also sends him some revealing photographs of herself on her mother's grave, and this prompts Ray to send her a demo of a song, which she records herself singing, and Rosalind's take on the song Flame becomes a hit, and a bunch of other stuff happens, but I'm not going to tell you for two reasons. One, if you've never heard it, I really don't don't want to spoil where it goes if you're interested in two. Well, okay, so I wasn't the only one that found the radio play a bit heavy-handed and difficult, so Atlantic rushed out what they called a music-only version of the album on CD, and frankly, that's the one I'm going to be focusing on here, because it's the way I like it best, and I told you this would be a personal journey, so that's just how it's going to be. Don't worry, I know Cat Blackard is going to push me out of my fucking chair again, just so they can talk about how much they prefer the radio play version, but humor me here. I'd like to think it's my show for a few minutes. All right. Let me emphasize, I find the music-only version of Psycho Derelict to be highly enjoyable, devastatingly underrated, and while it's not my favorite thing Pete has ever done, I put the version without dialogue at least on par with White City. The folks that prefer the radio play seem to be kind of broken glass about it, just as I feel strongly that the version with intensive dialogue is neat to revisit once in a while, but if I'm reaching for anything Pete Townsend related, I'm ultimately reaching for it because of his music, so I'm the polar opposite of those folks. 
I've seen fans that claim to hate this album completely change their position when finding out about the music-only version, but I've also seen it the other way around. And there's just not going to be any easy answers with Psycho Derelict. So since there's no right way to talk about it, I'm just going to jump into the deep end, so to speak, with the album's lead cut and main single. Boy was already and always going to be a hard sale to radio with so many legacy artists at this time failing to break through at all, but it couldn't have been less in line with the burgeoning modern rock playlists, and the lyrics that emphasize growing up British probably wouldn't have resonated with American radio listeners, but it was really our loss because it's a really neat chugging rocker, and especially after the scare with Pete's wrist, it's especially refreshing to hear the album open with his slashing electric guitar. Now, one of my top picks here is the song Let's Get Pretentious, which seems like it was invented to literally make the record bulletproof against any criticism against, well, claims of pretentiousness. And there's also little bits strewn throughout the album, most of which are named in some variant way after Mehir Baba, but where these are used on the dialogue album as the sound of Rehai going through his old tapes, when you're able to hear them clearly, you'll catch snatches of Won't Get Fooled Again, Baba O'Reilly, and even Who Are You? Ditto for the track Early Morning Dreams, which is initially used as a commercial in the first version, but when the dialogue is removed from the top, you're left with a beautiful and pastoral yet quite powerful composition with lines that make you really wonder if Lifehouse was even a good thing in the first place when you're greeted with lines like, you are safe from home. And frankly, I don't even have the words to tell you how gorgeous the ballad called Now and Then is, but I really can't explain why this song wasn't aggressively marketed as a single, because there's simply no universe where this one wouldn't make a list of at least Pete's top 10 ballads of all time. Elsewhere, the song Outlive the Dinosaur is especially exciting. It's got a neat little repetitive groove, and the spoken impressionistic lyrical couplets remind me of some of the deeper cuts from All the Best Cowboys Have Chinese Eyes, and it even comes complete with a surprisingly house music-inspired interlude. There's a lot to love on Psycho Derelict, and especially on the music-only version, whether it's the extra verse in the song predictable or being able to focus on fantastic lyrics without distraction, like the line, make me of shit in a two tenor deal, make me of pornography in a pedophile wheel, found in the song Don't Try to Make Me Real. Unfortunately, Rosalind's song Flame falls just a bit flat for me in kind of an overwrought way. And listen, I know that this record is just bursting at the seams with material, but for some ungodly reason, the best song I've heard from the sessions is called Uneasy Street, and it was decidedly left off of all initial versions of the record, eventually winding up on a compilation, but the song frankly deserved a lot better, and it's my belief that if it were worked into the running order somewhere, 
Having that one extra super strong track might have gone a good long way. Having said that, I'm not sure where they actually would have stuck it in the story. It's just a really good song. Cap, the podcast network director. Here's the thing about the psychoderelict audio play version. The songs are great, and they really truly do deserve to stand on their own and be heard without interruption and without the really absurd track breaks that the CD has. But the record itself is about artistic intentions of the many things that it's about. And I personally would much prefer to hear the music in the context of Pete Townsend's narrative than this version not exist. I want to know what he has to say. What he has to say is extremely valuable. The ending of the narrative might be abrupt at how all the parties have a happy ending, but think about what he's done here. This dynamic of an aging rock star retreating within himself and trying to piece together a concept much bigger than himself, and a journalist who's downright nasty, and an adversarial relationship that turns into a conspiracy that turns into a mentorship that... I mean, there's a lot here. It's a very unique story that could only really be conceived by someone who's lived a part of it. It's fiction, but it's not. These were things that he needed to express and work through, and without the audio drama version, you lose new attempts to explain that one note, that thing that's bigger than all of us and is within all of us. I mean, few people have had as clear a vision of it as Pete, and few people have done such amazing work to represent that concept as clearly as he has. And look, Pete's gospel on that is his own, but he's not wrong. I felt the one note in me... Is it music? Is it something else? But it's a resonance that is critically important. And yeah, it's buried inside this weird, sordid little story, but it's a cool, sordid little story. I mean, I've been Ray. I've been Rosalind. I'm happy to say I haven't been Rustus. But those characters are very complex and rather unique. They tap into certain aspects of artist and ingenue and... And if it was committed to film, it'd probably be genius. But instead, most people regarded it as an impediment to this rock record because, oh, you musician, you didn't give us what we expected. Fuck you. He's an artist and he's self-conscious. And the last thing an artist needs is another person telling them their shit because they tell themselves that more than enough. Believe you me. It's an extremely well-produced audio drama. And I, too, produce audio dramas. That was never a goal of mine. It's something I fell into and became very passionate about. And now I'm realizing that this very cinematic, very dynamic audio drama may have been a basis for me understanding how to work that craft. So in that sense, it is quite well done and has been extremely valuable to my life. Perhaps it could be valuable to yours if you don't come into it with contrary expectations. Ideally, what should have happened, I think the optimal version of Psycho Derelict would be two discs. It would be the music and the audio play. So you can have your rock record expectations and you can have these songs and respect them for as quality as they are because they're fantastic pieces. But then you can also hear Pete's story as it's meant to be from him, from his heart. There's something really significant here. And if you don't have the ears to sit down and listen to this audio drama, like you'd sit down and listen to a podcast, well, just... Don't listen to this version. Listen to the all-music version. It should have been presented better, sure. But it's valuable. It's vital. It's flawed. I mean, I could give it a full critical breakdown. I could talk about the ways it's problematic. But there's some really important things in there. And they shouldn't be ignored. And hey, while we're on the topic of audio dramas, it would behoove me to mention that if you'd like to check out the work that I do, it's very different, but check out the Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program at CthulhuMystery.com. It's a black comedy RPG occult horror story. And listen to the audio drama version of Psycho Derelict. 
Just let your ears tell you a story. All right, look, Cap, you've made some great points here, but I'm going to throw out, since you riffed for a moment on the importance of Psychoderelict, I'm going to riff on a different idea of how this thing could have been rolled out. Now, I know this is not a perfect world. I'm not right. There is no universe where I know better than Pete Townsend or The Who. It's just, yeah, it, it ain't that kind of party. But imagine, if you will, right, that there had been a bigger, bigger, bigger promo push for Psychoderelict at the time in 93, right? So what they do is they play the radio play on the radio, like pump it for weeks. Tonight, 8 p.m., you're going to hear Pete Townsend's Psychoderelict as it was meant to be heard, the radio play. So right, they play you the whole thing in full, like the day before it comes out. But then when you go to the store to buy it, it's just... The music-only version. Now, if you want to hear the play version, you've got to go see it live because that's the way it was meant to be taken on. This is just my assumption, okay? Then, people would start passing around that radio play like a bootleg, and then they're going to go, oh, but if you haven't heard the radio play version, you haven't really heard Psycho Derelict. Instead, it was that initial, you don't have any choice here. There are going to be fantastic songs, and we're going to drown them out that turned me off and a lot of others. But now that I've got all these different ways that I can hear a Psycho Derelict, now I've found a way in to hear a version of each song included that's just right for me as a fan. Anyways, it was just a thought, and I just kind of wanted to riff on it for a minute. But in all seriousness, Psycho Derelict brings together lots of familiar faces like Jody Lynn Scott, John Rabbit Bundrick, Simon Phillips, Cleveland Wacus, it shouldn't surprise you that Billy Nichols is around as well. All of those folks were in the deep end band for Pete Townsend and backing musicians on the Who's 1989 tour. So Psychoderelict isn't perfect, but the bright spots are practically blinding. Pete would cite low record sales as the reason that this has been his last full solo record of original new material to date, but he wasn't done yet, and he wasn't even close to being done. Although, he would have to figure out how to tour the thing if he wanted to move a few more units. So, Pete did end up doing a handful of multimedia shows to promote Psychoderelic, complete with stage actors and all. Though it looks like he did less than 20 of these shows, by his own standards, this was the biggest tour he'd ever done as a solo artist, and while there's a great snapshot of the pretty intense energy and theatrical presentation available on a DVD called Pete Townsend, live from New York, featuring Psycho Derelict, it would seem that the mounting pressure of pulling off and starring in his most ambitious stage concept since Quadrophenia got to him, as by the time the tour reached Chicago, Pete had fallen off the wagon, getting quite drunk beforehand, eventually even performing a portion of the show flat on his back, according to audience tapes. It doesn't seem as if Pete ever really forgave himself for not being at his best that night, and as a result, nearly every time he'd do a benefit concert or he'd want a guinea pig something before taking it out in a big way, he'd likely do it in Chicago first. But 1994 was practically heaven-sent for longtime Who fans, as the first major excavation of the vaults resulted in what some considered to be the gold standard of box sets, The Who's 30 Years of Maximum R&B. Not only did it bring together tons of non-album singles, many tracks had been freshly remixed for maximum clarity, and while a few too many crossfades that mar the beginning and ends of some tracks exist, the four-disc set brought us oodles of unreleased material, like clips of Keith's BBC series, as well as outtakes from Sellout, Lifehouse, and enough live material to give us the hint that there's likely a lot more in the vaults that we'd previously dreamt. 
Unfortunately, not everyone in the Who's camp was pleased with it, and on at least one occasion, Roger showed his disapproval in an interview by dumping the box's contents on the ground, according to the WhoThisMonth.com. Now, at least Roger had tried to talk Pete into a 30th anniversary tour, and he made no bones about his displeasure of Pete's refusal in an interview with Goldmine magazine. Pete had told them that he'd be fine with the band continuing with simply Roger and John, and that maybe his brother Simon could do his guitar parts. On at least one occasion, that lineup performed a full show at a Who convention, but ultimately, this may be what led to a pretty strange tour overall. Roger Daltrey would start a 1994 tour called Daltrey Sings Townsend. He would take that aforementioned lineup on the road with Zach Starkey on drums, Rabbit on keys, Jody Lynn Scott back on percussion, Billy Nichols helping out with backing vocals, and if you thought that the 1989 Who tour sounded overblown, wait till you hear this lineup with a full-on orchestra. John Entwistle showed up for at least portions of the gigs. The shows had insanely thorough set lists and included nearly the entirety of Quadrophenia being performed on stage for the first time in over 20 years. Pete would show up for at least one show, yet the three never appeared together at the same time as per Pete's wishes, though they did reportedly end up all together for the bows at Carnegie Hall, though I'm not personally sure if they'd actually played together at that gig or not. Souvenirs from the rather strange tour would be released on home video, and a shortened version with guests like The Chieftains, Linda Perry, and David Sanborn under the title A Celebration, the Music of Pete Townsend and the Who. John Entwistle had certainly seemed to be excited by this run of shows, premiering his own solo band in early 1996 simply titled The John Entwistle Band. This group was anchored by drummer Steve Luongo, who had since become one of John's very best friends, and vocalist-guitarist Godfrey Townsend, who, despite the last name, had no relation at all to Pete. Their shows tended to heavily favor the Who songs that John had written, which rarely got live airings, and to my knowledge, this was the first appearance of a commercially available version of that unreleased 1986 album, The Rock, which was available at the merch stands at their reportedly painfully loud shows. Painfully loud, of course, should be exactly what would please any Who fan, but as John's hearing was reportedly diminishing at the same rate that Pete's was, if not faster, the volume may have been out of sheer necessity. But one thing I do want to say about the John Entwistle band, um, I want to say it now and I'll probably reiterate this later. At first, when I heard them doing Who songs, something didn't quite sit right with me. Then I watched a live video of them doing it, and I realized that Godfrey Townsend was taking on such a massively heroic role <laughs> that he was trying to sing Roger's parts while playing like Pete, while not looking boring on stage. And Steve Luongo had to kind of mimic Keith Moon without sounding like Keith Moon, yet in the dead center would be this thing that was exactly like it was in The Who. This is not an easy task, and somehow the John Entwistle band pulled it off and were really tight and strong live. Frankly, I think they're super underrated. I just wanted to get that out there. 
as I was saying, by February of 1996, it was clear that some movement was bubbling from the Who camp when the BBC's Radio 1 aired a special about Lifehouse of all things, on what might have been its 25th anniversary, assuming it would have been completed in 1971. Pete would do low-key shows around this time, seeming to just want to get out there and play. These were often one-man affairs, though he'd bring multi-instrumentalist John Karen along, sometimes for extra depth. But the real excitement came when it was decided that Townsend, Entwistle, and Daltrey would congregate in London's Hyde Park in June of 1996 to play Quadrophenia Live and in its entirety for potentially the first time ever. John had come up with the name TED, or T-E-D, for this lineup, an acronym for Townsend, Entwistle, Daltrey, as Pete was adamant that the show would not be billed to The Who. So sometimes the Ted name was used, sometimes the show would be billed to just Quadrophenia, and sometimes The Who's Quadrophenia. The Hyde Park gig would utilize just as many musicians as the 1989 tour did, but with David Gilmour guesting on guitar. Gary Glitter would also guess, but in rehearsals, he'd swung a mic stand and hit Roger in the eye, so Daltrey was left to perform with a spiral eye patch on, and perhaps the most important and different component was the onstage appearance of the seemingly ageless Phil Daniels, who had played Jimmy in the film version of Quadrophenia. He would narrate the story between songs so that Roger didn't have to. The show wasn't without its technical hiccups, but it proved successful enough to have gig offers pouring in to take this thing on the road, and that's exactly what they did, minus David Gilmour. The shows would span over two years, with Gary Glitter doing a portion of the dates long before we, um, knew all the nasty stuff. But also Billy Idol as the Ace Face and PJ Proby as the Godfather. Jimmy's narration would instead be pre-filmed to divert your attention away from the stage itself between songs, and on most nights the gigs ran with more precision than many had ever seen from this organization before. These shows would later be immortalized in a DVD set that contained performances from both this and the 1989 tours, and while in some markets the scheduled shows would absolutely be billed to the Who, the limbo nature of the billing certainly left many fans confused as to Exactly what was happening with these three individuals? Are they together? Is it a cash-in? What is this besides entertainment? Again, no easy answers. But as the outcome ultimately ended up being performances of Quadrophenia that finally lived up to the album's promise, few could really complain. And they weren't about to stop looking back either. 1996 also saw an archival release of the band's classic 1970 appearance at the Isle of Wight Festival, and those in the know had claimed for years that the tapes were initially thought to be unusable, so this release came as a complete surprise to many. After that Quadrophenia tour wrapped, John got back to work with his own solo band, and they'd been tapped to provide music for a short-lived animated show called Vampires. That's V-A-N hyphen P-I-R-E-S. I've never seen a single frame of the show, and it never even seemed to have a chance to catch fire, but it gave John an excuse to put together oodles of new material, which he'd be able to take on the road. 
Vampires premiered in 1997, and there were roughly 13 episodes produced before its untimely demise, but the impetus of having new material to show off seemed to really inspire John to take it to as many towns as possible, even if it meant that they'd have to play some rather out-of-the-way venues just to get everywhere that they possibly could. These shows were first immortalized in a 1999 release called Left for Live, released on Jaybird Records, and it seemed to disappear from the market as soon as it showed up. The tracklist was half Who-related material, including a complete surprise as John's band tackles Roger's solo single, Under a Raging Moon? The other half of the album was either John's solo tunes or brand new songs we'd never heard before, all of which showed quite a bit of promise. The good news is that the 12-track album would be reissued at literally twice its original length about a year and a half later, but unfortunately, it would be a bit overshadowed by some very sad news. But still, it's nice to revisit this live album and hear John Entwistle finally taking more of his solo material to the stage. But here's where things get really surprising. That film version of The Iron Man finally appeared in 1999 as the Iron Giant with a vastly different setting than Pete's initial treatment, but it's still quite beloved by those who grew up on it, and it's kind of timeless in its own way. Pete would also release a live album from one of his sporadic solo shows as Pete Townsend Live, a benefit from Maryville Academy, captured in Chicago, of course. And sure, there's a few hits that you might expect on it, but you've also got a really cool, slow-building cover of Canned Heat's On the Road Again. I Perhaps most surprising of all on that live album is a brand new and quite expansive take on Any Way, Anyhow, Anywhere, the second single by The Who, which prior to these dates probably had not been done on stage by any member of the band since around 1965, and if it had creeped into any gigs, it certainly hadn't been done with any regularity, and it was quite a surprising move for such a formative early hit. Okay, not surprising enough? How about this? The Who not only got back together again in 1999, but they did so with just Pete Townsend, John Entwistle, and Roger Daltrey, only being supplemented by Zach Starkey on drums and longtime sideman Rabbit on keyboard. The five-man lineup got together and blew the doors off of an ill-fated gig that was supposed to launch an internet company called Pixelon. Pixelon, claiming that they'd be broadcasting the show to over a billion people on the internet alone in 1999 already sounded too good to be true, but it was proven to be so after the new technology crashed, leaving everyone in the dark. The jury is still out if Pixelon's claims about having the reunion streamed on the Astrovision screens in Times Squares are true or not, but as the show was eventually seen on a DVD called The Vegas Job, it's a perfect example of how The Who can be falling apart and blistering at the same time. Pete was attacking his electric guitar with a fervor he hadn't shown in years, John's bass tone was filling in all of your heavy distortion needs, 
Roger was in fine voice, but it was watching Zack Starkey effortlessly filling the completely unfillable shoes of Keith Moon that really seemed to give The Who this brand new lease on life. The fire from those 1999 shows stayed intact even as The Who did their first ever completely acoustic shows for Neil Young's yearly bridge school benefits. same fire stayed steady in the various club dates they'd done in Shepherd's Bush and Chicago, which eventually made their way onto an incredibly out of print by now, internet-only live album called The Blues to the Bush. Substitute your lies for fact. I see right through your plastic mat. I look all white, but my dad was black. My fine-looking suit is really made out of sack. That's when, all of a sudden, the floodgates seemed to open. With a collection of the band's recordings that were made especially for the BBC way back in the day, reaching store shelves as the BBC sessions in February of 2000. Why don't you all fade away? Interestingly, these early recordings often have slightly better fidelity than their original releases ever did, which makes it far more important than the curiosity it may appear to be at a glance, especially as it was revealed to have studio recordings of early covers that the band did on stage that had never seen an official release, like Good Lovin', Just You and Me, Dancing in the Street, and Shaking All Over. with so much activity, fans were wondering exactly what all of this meant. Could we expect new Who music? And those fires were usually fanned by various statements made in the press as asides were dropped that Roger was collecting material for possible inclusion. And frankly, ever since then, there's been a bit of a cycle. The Who become active, some member will mention the possibility that a new album might be coming. Fans eventually ask for more information, and none ever shows up rinse and repeat. If Who fans seem entitled, it likely comes from years of being told something is on the way and rarely seeing it materialize. Proof positive that Pete was right. After the fire, the fire clearly does continue to burn, and a fire that simply refused to be extinguished was Lifehouse. In late 1999, the BBC aired a radio play version of Lifehouse that didn't seem to have much in common with the story as we'd known it for so many years, but eventually it would make its way onto a six-disc box set that contained nearly every scrap of music that Pete had recorded for the project. Demos, initial intended track list, and songs we'd never officially gotten to hear. This box, which was called Lifehouse Chronicles, would also include orchestral music that may have been meant as incidental music for the various film treatment phases and radical reworkings of songs that might have previously seemed untouchable. I remember throwing punches around, preaching from our chair. Who 
Unfortunately, the highly desirable box set went out of print quicker than anyone expected and now fetches well into the three-digit range on resale sites, and it is a complete crime that this thing hasn't been reissued, and frankly, we all need to stop and have a good and long, hard think about why on earth such an important project consistently gets swept under the rug. But I'm getting off track. The Lifehouse Chronicles box set, it was a fan's dream come true, and it was only the beginning of the riches that were to be found at Pete's website, Eel Pie. I mean, if the guy was writing about the internet as early as 1970, he'd surely be the very definition of an early adopter, right? So not only was Eopai used to sell the Lifehouse box and a separate box that collected all of the Mehir Baba tribute compilation albums in one place, it would become Pete's clearing ground for random unreleased MP3s, essays, and more. But perhaps the most startling move was Pete's decision to bring the music of Lifehouse to the stage for only two nights. The shows took place in London at the Sadler's Well Theatre, and the music was presented in the hybrid style of Pete's home recordings, the revamped renditions found deep in the Lifehouse box, with hints of the Who's arrangements thrown in for good measure. Understandably, fans wondered if this would become a tour, but they likely were not ready in any way for what they actually got instead to promote the Lifehouse box. In the summer of 2000, the five-man version of The Who started a massive arena tour, partly to help get John out of his ever-present financial problems, and partly to promote Pete's Lifehouse box. But when one checks out some of the circulating video footage, and there's a lot of it from this tour, the onstage passion was simply unmistakable, and the band was playing with a fury not seen since potentially the early 80s at the least. few fans would leave these shows with any reviews less than, yup, the magic is back. And even if you couldn't attend a show, Pete would obsessively document everything about the tour that he possibly could on his EOPI website, even offering up free downloads after shows that he was especially pleased with. Amidst all of this activity, the bulk of the Who's catalog had been remixed, remastered, and reissued, often in controversial configurations, but with so much going on, it might have been easy to miss that the debut album, My Generation, had not been touched due to a decades-old feud 
over ownership of the multi-tracks with producer Shell Tommy. So while The Who was on tour, Shell had even tried to sell the tapes on eBay, but they'd eventually land back in the band's hands for better or for worse. Meanwhile, John quietly released his first solo album since 1986, and the sole studio album he'd make with the John Entwistle band, Music from Vampires. So, remember that cartoon called Vampires that John was doing the music for? In the summer of 2000, in the midst of the Who's Massive Arena tour, Pulsar quietly released the soundtrack to the show, billed it to the John Entwistle band, and that was that. And I think I vaguely recall seeing it for sale at the merch stand at the Who's concert in Tampa, Florida around the year 2000, but memory can be tricky, so don't quote me on that. But the memory sticks because it'd be the first time I would have known anything about this album. Of course, I didn't pick it up. Why would I buy the soundtrack to something I've never seen that's attributed to a band I've never really heard, right? And I can't imagine that I was the only person that felt this way, and I think it might go a long way for explaining the relative obscurity of this release. But here's the shocker. It's actually pretty rad. So what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to divorce the music contained on this hour-long disc from the notion that it might have been meant for other purposes and try to think about it on its very own merits. As you'll see, you can't completely remove it, but I also think that the record is too important to the Who's saga to be written off as a mere soundtrack. Because let's face it, we know what's coming, and this would turn out to contain the last 14 original songs that John Entwistle would write and release into the world, and I simply refuse to treat that as a footnote. So first things first. Yeah, it's a little cheesy, but it's clear that the general rock and roll with dark undertones were what the show must have called for, so I'm not going to go on about dated-sounding synths or anything like that here. I think everything has a place on this record, and when played straight through, it doesn't feel slapdash. This is a genuine, honest-to-goodness record, but it just happened to be marketed as a soundtrack. So let's first talk about just how much the song Bogeyman Rules. Well, it's written as Bogeyman, but it's clearly sung as Boogeyman. Not only is the spooky vibe literally everything anyone could want from a John Entwistle song, and not only is there tons of brass doing wacky things, but it's also a song that was begun by Keith Moon and John in the late 70s, and it's the most heartwarming thing to hear the rhythm section reunited on record unexpectedly in the year 2000. Wash that face and hands, you think your skin Interestingly, if you check out the liner notes to the music from Vampire's album, at the very end there's an essay written by John himself where he claims that the ghost of a dog in his house actually helped him find the tape of the song Bogeyman. I'm, I'm not making this up. It's there, it's provable, I promise this is what John claimed. 
Anyways, now, there'd been a number of years since John's last official studio release, he clearly had a well of half-finished things to pull from, and it's pretty easy to tell what comes from when if you've got the ears for it. For example, there's no question that the refreshingly creepy Darker Side of Night is a newer tune, as you can hear the difference in John's age-ravaged voice, but that still works really well against his band's exceptional harmonic skills. side of things, an older tune called Back on the Road appears, and it's a bit countrified, a bit laid back, and it has a heavy piano focus, which makes it kind of strangely reminiscent of the most moving parts of the Whistle Rhymes album from 1972. And in true John Entwistle fashion, it can't just have one meeting. And it also needs some references to masturbation just to balance things out. track Good and Evil first came on, I heard this uh, gravelly voice coming out of nowhere, and I thought that it might be the return of John's Boris the Spider voice at first. Instead, it's pretty clearly not the return of the Boris the Spider voice, but instead, I'm pretty sure this is why I can't completely divorce the music from the show itself, because it's definitely coming from the mouth of a character, though I've never seen the show, so I can only speculate. But since I've never seen the show, I also get the luxury of just accepting the off-kilter voices as just a little bit more weirdness on a John Entwistle record, and that's absolutely not a bad thing. The John Entwistle band seems to favor the harder rockin' stuff as a general rule, though they're quite versatile. On the song Left for Dead, one can hear that it's supposed to be a slightly lighter moment, but meanwhile, John's bass is just set to stun, as always. It's the coda of the song Left for Dead that I really want to draw your attention to. It seems like a number of chord changes that reference various tracks from Who's Next, but with John's bass tone being such a focal point, even a completely different band can capture something close to the vibe of classic Who, as long as John is there, apparently. crazy, right? You all hear that too, don't you? I mean, I kind of knew it all along, and no one is less important than the next guy in The Who, but it's getting pretty hard to argue that John isn't the band's secret weapon when you have it placed right in front of you as it is in this track. And hey, while we're talking about The Who, can we take a minute to focus on just how perfectly the song Endless Vacation would have worked for the next Who project? I mean, the band does love to reference themselves and especially the song My Generation, so... Not everything is totally rosy here, of course. 
The song I'll Try Again Today is either a very positive and hopeful song, or it's the darkest song ever penned about suicide I've ever personally heard, depending on which perspective you take it from. And songs like Rebel Without a Car definitely feel like work assignments rather than something that was penned in a fit of inspiration. But overall, this record is way better than it might appear on the surface, and it's a little bit criminal that such a fitting final solo album for John isn't better known because it's it's one fitting ending for the man, especially on the closing Face the Fear. As of this taping, music from Vampires is not an easy album to find inexpensively, and I'm not sure that I'd even be recommending it if it weren't something that completely defied my expectations during the research for this project. But it is absolutely essential listening for anyone who is a fan of John's unfairly underrated songwriting, though it will certainly remind that type of listener of all that could have been. Alright, I'm going to take a quick break here just to give you some links that matter. Don't worry, we're not done with the show yet, and we're certainly not done with the story. We still have quite a bit to go, but the finish line is kind of in sight. So bear with me here while we do some links that matter. If you want to hook up with us, well, the best way to do it, look for Discography on Facebook, or if you want to type it in manually, facebook.com slash discography on CPN. Also, uh, wherever you found our show, iTunes, Podchaser, Rent-A-Pod, whatever it is, uh, please rate and review the show because that actually helps us get into more ears. That's just how algorithms currently work. I don't know how that's going to age when I, you know, now that I've said that and then 30 years later, assuming there's not some solar flare that doesn't erase like all the clouds and satellites and stuff. Anyways, Jesus Christ, this has been Conspiracy Talk with Mark with a C. Let's talk about some other links. I don't just host stuff and uh, obsessively research the who. Oh, no. For nearly 20 years, I've been making independent lo-fi pop records, and I'd like you to check some of them out. So when you've got a moment, assuming the mood takes you, markwithac.com, there's a bunch of music there you can listen to. There's also a place there where you can buy records and compact discs, and those really help out struggling independent musicians more than you can even imagine. But if you want to hook up with me on social media, facebook.com slash Music. On Twitter, I'm twitter.com slash markfi. That's right, at markfi. You've heard it before, I'm going to say it again. That's M-A-R-C-F-I, as in there's hi-fi, mid-fi, lo-fi, and markfi. And if you really want to give back to me as a person, okay, well, you're really giving back to my career, but patreon.com slash markwithac. It's basically kind of like a fan club and a monthly tip jar all in one. And what happens here is when you donate a dollar or two dollars per month or whatever, that money transparently goes into future projects. And right now the future projects are trying to make stuff for my 20th anniversary. One of those things is going to be a book and one of those things is going to be a three LP set of some of my listeners' favorite songs over the years. I think it'll be really cool and uh, hopefully rewarding for you. You know, a lot of DIY musicians don't really record our memoirs, and people only piece our histories together way later on when other people are telling the story incorrectly. And if you're gonna get the story incorrectly, I prefer you got it incorrectly from me. 
Sound good? Speaking of other independent artists, sometimes when you hear some background music here and you're like, wait, that's not The Who. Well, that's actually Jordan McKenna. Just search Jordan McKenna on SoundCloud. You can find lots of his tunes there. And the more ambient stuff when we're talking about specific albums, that is provided by none other than Chris Zabriskie. You can find more about his music at chrisabriskie.com. I know that at least myself and Chris Zabriskie, you can stream pretty much almost anything we've released on Spotify, Pandora, Google Play, whatever the streaming services in the future will probably be there. I don't know about Chris, to be honest with you. I can't speak on his behalf, but Mark with a C Music, assuming, assuming everything continues the way that I think that it will and the domestication of the dog continues unabated, will continue to be on streaming services if you're hearing this episode in 2048 or 2112, in which case, please play side one of the record you know I'm thinking of in my absence. Hey, this has been Links That Matter. Let's get back to the show. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, this is Cap, CPN Network Director. Mark and I bond over a lot of things, but most of all, music. We both obsess over it together and dive deep into nuanced collections of rare records to get that bigger picture. You probably know how it is. One day you realize that a bunch of your favorite records all have the same producer or session musician, and the next thing you know, you're on a wild goose chase for rare records hunting down more of those sweet sounds. Or say there's a band you love, like The Who, with an expansive catalog, different mixes of the same track, critical bootlegs. That's why I'm so excited that this season of Discography is sponsored by Reverb LP. You might know Reverb as an incredible music gear resale marketplace. Well, Reverb LP is their marketplace for used and new music. Buy records, sell your records so you can have money to buy other records. They have an impeccable selection, which you can scope out online or even better via their app, which is available on Android and iOS. In fact, if you're looking to start your Who collection or fill in some gaps, we've got a virtual bin for you to flip through. Just go to lp.reverb.com cos and you'll see all the records discussed in this season. Reverb LP offers buyer protection so you won't ever have to worry about a bum deal. And say you're hunting down an unofficial release, rare tracks, bootlegs, you'll find them here. 
as far as I'm concerned, and this is me speaking like 100% personally, Reefer Bell P is the marketplace for record collectors. Download the app, scope out the store, or browse this season's discography at lp.reverb.com cos. Now, back to Mark. The Who's touring for the year 2000 wrapped up in November at the Royal Albert Hall in the UK as they played an incredibly long set filled with surprises and guests. Kelly Jones, Brian Adams, Eddie Vedder, Paul Weller, and Noel Gallagher, just to name a few. enthusiastically received show would later be released as a live album and DVD. Meanwhile, the John Entwistle Band began what would be their final tour in May of 2001, fittingly titled, you ready? 2001, A Bass Odyssey. Perhaps though, the most deservedly famous moment of The Who's new lease on life came on October 20th of 2001. America was devastated by the attacks on September 11th, and The Who performed at a nationally televised event known as The Concert for New York. Introduced by John Cusack with an audience of millions at homes, but the families of the victims and the rows of first responders greeting them on the floor, the band turned in an absolutely ravaging performance. a star-studded lineup with the likes of David Bowie, Paul McCartney, Melissa Etheridge, and far more celebrities than we have time to name, but while each of them were certainly being quite respectful in their appearances, The Who instead opted to use their 25 minutes to simply show up and be The Who. The first responders flipped out at their first chance to blow off some steam since the tragedy and one of the most beautifully symbiotic moments in rock history. First responders and the people on the arena floor would hold up pictures of their lost loved ones and they'd sob along to Behind Blue Eyes. And after a particularly cathartic won't get fooled again, a police officer handed Roger his own hat, which Roger refused to wear, stating, and I quote, we could never follow what you did. For at least 20 or so minutes, the Who had healed people by being themselves. And the videos and the recordings back it up. If this had been their last appearance ever, it would have been a very worthy note to go out on. Those of us who are hoping for even more insight into Pete Townsend's creative process would be rewarded roughly a week later as he released a third collection of home recordings and experiments called Scoop 3 in October of 2001. This one follows in the footsteps of its predecessors but focuses mostly on post-1978 creations, which is when Pete claims that he became more autobiographical with his writing. And besides a few Quadrophenia demos and an insight into the demo for however much I booze from Who By Numbers, he stays true to his word. 
But some of the stuff here is especially shocking, like a completely different take on Eminence Front. wish I'd decided to focus on the Scoop series in full now that we've gotten to this one, because there's so much great stuff going on here that it really deserves more time than I've allotted it. And really, for Who scholars, it's like a Rosetta Stone. The material ranges from 1978's unreleased but so gorgeous you'll wonder why it isn't a world-famous ballad known as I Like It The Way It Is. I think I like it. And then there's versions of psychoderelic material that's so formative, you're not even gonna recognize Outlive the Dinosaur. There's also some beautifully batshit yet unimposing synth experiments like elephants, there's more holes being filled in the massive gaps on the Iron Man, to swinging numbers coded in auto-tune like Maxims for Lunch, to songs that wouldn't even be completed for a few years to come. I mean, it might be 30 tracks, but it's the most densely populated 30-track trip into Pete's vault that you could hope for. So satisfying that it becomes kind of greater than the sum of its parts as it plays, delivering its own vibe and flow that you likely wouldn't expect from a collection of unreleased curiosities. Those who are curious what these fuzzy warbles are like, but weren't sure where to begin, Seven short months later, Pete would release a compilation called Scooped as a sort of greatest hits of his demo collections. The Who would gear up for another tour in 2002. Some shows were done in February at the Royal Albert Hall for Roger's passion project of a charity, the Teenage Cancer Trust, which aims to make living conditions better for adolescents whose bodies have revolted against them at a time where puberty is confusing enough. Roger would orchestrate yearly shows at the hall to raise money and awareness, but he couldn't have possibly predicted that these shows over the 7th and 8th of that month would be the last that John would ever play with the group. Though Pete would later comment on having a vibe that John wasn't going to make it. In the short term, he'd said that he'd found himself bored during this pair of gigs. The audience certainly didn't seem bored, and the reclaimed fire of the pared down Who reunion shows didn't seem to be cooling down either. I have to wonder how much more emotional the show would have been if people knew that these would be the last notes John would ever play with his childhood friends on a stage. John, Alec, and Twistle passed away at the Hard Rock Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada on June 27, 2002, one day before what was supposed to be the first show of The Who's 2002 U.S. tour. Reportedly, he'd gone to bed with a sex worker who awoke the next morning to find Entwistle cold and unresponsive. The Clark County Medical Examiner determined that his death was due to a heart attack induced by a cocaine overdose. John was 57 years old, 
and he's greatly missed the world over for completely changing the way that people approach the bass guitar. The Who's onstage sound would never be the same. Yes, that's right, they're onstage sound. Few could believe it at the time, but Roger and Pete found themselves back on stage a mere four days later at the Hollywood Bowl. When faced with the reality of putting literally every single member of the Who's organization out of work with no notice, Pete called on Pino Palladino to fill in for John. Pino had toured with him for Psycho Derelict, as well as joining Roger for his 1994 shows, so he already had a pretty good grasp on a lot of Who tunes. But he had such a clean tone compared to John that the difference was immediately evident. Yet, the band soldiered on with Pino, Zack, and Rabbit to back up the Who, now reduced to a duo. No one knows what it's like to be the bad man To be the sad man And that's where we're going to cut it this week. I know it's kind of a downer note to end on, and hey, I'm going to be blunt with you. Next week, we're going to kind of open on another pretty downer note. But this is not an easy story. It's an important story. It's a great story of one of the greatest rock and roll bands in the history of music, and I'm so honored to get to tell you about it. My name's Mark with a C. Thank you so much for tuning into Discography this week. Discography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network, or rather, I produce it here in my home studio, and uh, Consequence Podcast Network makes sure it gets out into your ears. You can help make sure it gets into more ears by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, sharing episodes, word of mouth, just telling people that this show exists and that you like it. Hopefully you like it. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Either way, we couldn't do what we do without you. I mean, we could. I could make these shows, but there'd be no ears to receive it. And then you got the whole tree falling in the forest thing, and nobody wants to deal with that. So, thank you very, very much for your patronage, for your ears, for your listening time, and for just being citizens of the People's Republic of Discography. I'll see you again next week. The story's going to get weird, but we're getting pretty close to where we're currently at. My name's Mark with a C. Until next time, see you later, my friends. Consequence Podcast Network.